Go ahead and be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, starting in verse 13, and reading through to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Reverently listen to it as I read it to you. Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter your... For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering on the altar, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, he who swears, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean out, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean out the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, 
If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Amen. Wow. Pray with me. Lord, would you please bless this, the unpacking of this passage to your people, and would you please honor yourself as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, where are all the kids? Eyes up here? Youngins? There we are. Very good. Um, you kids, I think, know this. Um, parents um, are supposed to love their children, aren't they? Right? Yeah. Parents are supposed to love their children. And they're supposed to take care of their children, right? That's what parents are supposed to do. And your parents, I know all of you, uh, have good parents. You have good parents who love you and who take care of you. And that's the right thing for parents to do. It's what they're supposed to do. In a similar way, children, uh, the leaders of churches, the elders we call them, uh, and the Bible calls them actually, are supposed to love the people whom God has given them to pastor, the way your parents are supposed to love you as children. Uh, the, the ministers uh, of the church, the pastors of the church, the elders, are supposed to love and care for those whom God has given to them to watch over and care for. And when they don't do that, when the ministers of the church, the pastors, the elders, don't care for or love their people, but actually hate them, it is a terrible, terrible thing. And that's what Jesus is speaking about in this passage I just read to you. The scribes and the Pharisees were among the, the pastors, the, the, the spiritual leaders in their day. And yet, they were evil men, most of them, not all of them, but the majority of them were evil men. Um, church leaders, religious types. Uh, and this passage speaks to the evil, the great evil that uh, of hypocrisy uh, in the leadership of the church. And we're going to look at that now uh, in our time together uh, now. Uh, just to remind you of the background here of where we are in, uh, in the ministry of Jesus. He is in the final week of his life. It is Tuesday of Passion Week, Passion uh, means uh, the week of Jesus' suffering. Uh, and uh, it, is, uh, it is on Tuesday, and Jesus is 
um, giving here, this, this, what, what I just read is the second section of a three-part discourse. The first section we looked at last week was verses 1 through 12. Uh, and this is the second part of that discourse, uh, the uh, public discourse. Uh, and then the third part we will look at, Lord willing, next week. It, it comes at the end of this chapter. But this is the very last public discourse uh, that's done out in the open of Jesus' uh, earthly life. He does give another discourse to his disciples, but that is a private uh, affair, if you will. It's uh, just his, his, his closest followers that uh, hear that discourse. But this is the last truly public one. There are two things uh, that we're going to look at in, uh, in this passage, that points that we can pull out of this passage. The one, the first is much longer than the second, but the, le- the second is in some sense more critical to hear. But the first is we're going to look at the great evils committed by the shepherds of the Jewish church of Jesus' day, or the church of Jesus' day. But then we're going to look finally and secondly at the horrifying destiny of the shepherds of the church of Jesus' day. But first, there is a long litany uh, of their evils that is set forth by Jesus uh, in this passage that I have read to you. The first one that uh, he speaks of, that the scribes and the Pharisees were guilty of, by the way, the scribes were the foremost teachers of their day, of the people of their day. They were the ones that unpacked the scriptures, for the, the Old Testament scriptures for the Jewish people, um, much like I am doing now. And uh, the majority, uh, I think the vast majority actually, of scribes were Pharisees. Apparently there were some that were not, but they were, they were a fairly small uh, minority. So when you said scribes and Pharisees, you were, there was a lot of overlap there. A lot of scribes were Pharisees, a fair number of Pharisees who were scribes. Uh, and he lumps them together. And so the first uh, accusation, uh, actually indictment, uh, that Jesus makes is he says that the scribes and the Pharisees caused many who had previously been open to Jesus' teaching concerning the kingdom of heaven, he, it caused, they caused many of those same folks to finally disregard Jesus' teaching uh, about the way to heaven, about the gospel, in other words. He says this uh, in verse 13. Religious, and I'll read it here in a minute, but these religious leaders pretended, they pretended rather to be religious leaders, to be shepherds of the sheep, to be pastors of the flock of God, who could be trusted to metaphorically open the door of the kingdom of heaven for God's people. Uh, they pretended to be that, to be trustworthy guides, in other words, uh, of the way to heaven. When Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven uh, in this passage and throughout it, he's referring to his own kingdom. Remember, the kingdom of God arrived when Jesus arrived because he was the king of the kingdom. Uh, he, was, he was the messianic king through whom uh, the triune God was ruling and would rule in fullness uh, upon his resurrection and ascension into glory. And so he was the king of that kingdom. Uh, a, uh, and it was, and he reigns now over that very same kingdom, a kingdom that is manifested on earth right now in the hearts and lives of those who put their trust in him, like you folks here. Um, and it, and that kingdom reaches its culmination when those believers arrive in heaven and ultimately when 
uh, Jesus um, uh, uh, brings in the new heavens and the new earth in 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 full fullness. So, uh, so when he speaks of, uh, let me read the verse, verse thirteen here. Got to find it. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourselves, meaning into the kingdom of heaven, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Instead of being... Um, so, so to enter into the kingdom of heaven, in other words, is, is another way of saying to become a follower of Jesus by faith. Uh, by trusting in him to be as one savior and lord but instead of being trustworthy guides trusted guides of uh to heaven most the vast majority it would appear of the scribes and the pharisees were actually treacherous frauds who were effectively blocking the door of heaven to the jewish people as i just read they did this with their heretical salvation by good works doctrine that they peddled uh, to the people that listened to them. And even more so, they did this by um, publicly undermining everything that Jesus said and did in such a way that people could see that they disapproved of Jesus uh, and then went, well, well, if my spiritual leaders don't approve of Jesus, I guess maybe I need to not consider uh, what he's saying anymore. Um, so, these were people, many of them, whom were initially open to listening to the teachings of Jesus and probably did come out and hear him teach, but eventually were persuaded that that was not the right thing to do by their church leaders. Evil men, wicked men, who shouldn't have been there in the first place. So that was the first uh, sin that Jesus uh, discusses and describes. The second is found in verse 14, and that is the scribes and the Pharisees, the evil ones, were guilty of abusing widows. That is to say, they took financial financial advantage, it would appear from what's, it's a little bit cryptic what he says here, but they essentially, they took financial advantage of women who had lost their husbands. Uh, and these were one of the most, in that day in particular, it's not like today, women were very, very dependent upon their husbands for protection, for provision. And without their husbands, they were exposed to all sorts of dangers, financial and otherwise. Uh, and so the religious leaders of the church in Jesus' day were preying upon the most vulnerable people in society. These women, uh, also orphans, were uh, in that category as well. But they preyed on widows, uh, taking financial advantage of them, separating them, it would appear, from resources that they needed to provide from them for themselves and did so through intimidation and coercion. The leaders of the church. And to make matters even worse, these men were attempting to cover up their detestable, greedy behavior by offering up long prayers, apparently in public, for these very same widows who they were whose money they were extorting. They would pray for the widows. Let's pray for the widows. Many televangelists today are guilty of this same spiritual crime. May God have mercy upon them. 
God does not approve, and that's putting it mildly, of those uh, who abuse the weak uh, and the helpless and um, those who are downtrodden. He hates it, and these men were guilty of it. And so too are men in churches today. The scribes and Pharisees also, thirdly, went on went to great lengths, we are told in verse 15, to, convert, to make converts to Pharisaic Judaism. I say that intentionally. Their brand of Judaism. They went to great lengths to make converts to their brand of Judaism. Uh, converts who were even more fanatically zealous about their damnable doctrines and practices than even they themselves were. We read verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So you see, they weren't satisfied merely to turn Gentiles away from their heathen practices and convince them that they needed to worship uh, the God of the Jew uh, as the true God in their local synagogues. This is, by the way, that was somebody that Cornelius fit that description. A, a, a God-fearer, they were, they were called, or a worshiper of God who was a Gentile. They weren't content just to, to, uh, to cause Gentiles to see, oh, the God of the, the, the Jew is the true God and the one that needs to be worshipped. No, 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 no. These men had to go further. They did everything in their power to turn these Gentile converts into full-fledged, hair-splitting, legalistic, outward, ritual-loving zealots of salvation by works religion, even more so than themselves. Which is why Jesus could say what he says about these converts, uh, that they were twice as much sons of hell as those who recruited them. And God blames those who recruited them for that wicked um, uh, perverse transformation of people. Fourthly, scribes and the Pharisees gave their followers a way, through their teaching, gave their followers a way to justify not keeping oaths which they themselves had taken. And they did this through their teaching. They did this by coming up with minute, extra-biblical, that is, outside of the Bible, distinctions in the law's teaching concerning oaths. Distinctions that would allow their followers, those who listened to them, to avoid seeing the law's true meaning with respect to oaths, and would also allow them to escape the consequences, or seemingly escape the consequences, of failing to do what God wanted them to do. Actually. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary explains what uh, these men did specifically. Uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, when they taught on oaths, he says, their position was that only oaths taken in the name of God were binding. Only oaths taken in the name of God were binding. But since the Jews did not usually use the name of God in their speech, but rather employed euphemisms such as heaven, or the temple, or God's throne, it became a debatable matter whether a specific oath was in the name of God or not, because of those euphemisms, in other words. The Jews would call swearing by the temple invalid, but they would say that swearing by the gold of the temple was valid, uh, meaning was binding. 
Swearing by the altar was insignificant, but swearing by the gift that had been placed on the altar, that counted. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees taught uh, the people under their charge. The truth of the matter, folks, is was at that time that any oath that was taken, any oath that was taken, whether it was taken by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by the temple or by God's throne or even by one's head, which Jesus mentions, uh, which we learn from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, any oath that was taken was binding upon the person who swore that oath, regardless of what substitute they might have used for the divine name. And that same thing is true today. It's true today. If you agree uh, to do something, whether you do so uh, by gosh and by golly, which are things you shouldn't use, which are substitutes for the divine name that people uh, don't, you don't hear quite as much used now, but you still hear a lot of uh, uh, substitutes. If there's something you agree to do, whether it's by those things I said or by Jove, You'll still sometimes hear people say that. Scouts honor uh, with a with a I promise or by pinky swearing, children. Whatever it might be, God expects, indeed requires you to keep your word. Regardless of the cost to you of doing so, whether it be a cost that comes in the form of time, energy, money, or inconvenience. The fact that this is the case is evident in Uh, many places, one of which is Numbers, chapter 30, verse 4, where we read this. No, verse 2, sorry. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So few people pay attention to this commandment anymore. Even in the church. People say uh, say they're going to do things. I'm not picking on any of you. But this is true in churches in general. People say they're going to do things. Uh, and to other people, they make a commitment in other words. And then they don't do it. I think probably all of us, I know I have been guilty of that myself in times past. But it's evil, you see. It's wrong. It's wrong to not be a man or a woman or a child of your word. So, are there any things that you, either recently or perhaps not so recently, have committed to but haven't done yet? Is there something that you need to do? Some unfinished business that you have with somebody else? God requires you to finish it, to do what you said, and to ask for forgiveness for not having done so up to this point. He'll give it to you, happily. But it is a great sin. And the scribes and the Pharisees were regularly guilty of it, and of teaching others to be guilty of it, too. Fifthly, the scribes and the Pharisees carefully observed their own man-made religious rules, but neglected to obey the things that were important 
to God. And he gives two examples of this. One in verse 23, and then another one in verse 25. I'm going to look at first at verse 23. I'll read it to you. Uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. I'll just stop there for the moment. It wasn't, you see, that tithing wasn't something that God wanted them to do. That's not the point that Jesus is making here, that tithing was wrong, that they should have focused on justice, mercy, and faithfulness and should have forgotten about tithing. That's not the point here. The law, um, the law specifically in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, specifically required the tithing of grain and wine and oil and fruit from the fruit trees and the firstborn of any flock or herd. That's what was specifically mentioned in the, in the Mosaic Law and was where the requirement was made given to tithe. And by the way, those things that I just men- mentioned, uh, that they were required to tithe on, were the sources of wealth in ancient Israel. Wealth didn't come in the form of uh, money, except maybe in uh, amongst the, the, the rich and the king and that sort of thing, who had his gold possessions and silver and whatnot. But for the average common man, the source of wealth was your, uh, your food stores and your animals uh, and what, what you were able to produce from the land. And so he's, he told them, these are the things you're just tithe from. That God still requires believers in the New Testament age to tithe is evident from the portion of the verse that I left off. Let me reread the verse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier, weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done, meaning justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the others. In other words, without neglecting what he just mentioned, tithing. This is in the New Testament. It's not in the Old Testament. It still applies today. But, as I mentioned a moment ago, Moses mentioned grain, wine, oil, fruit, flocks, but he never mentioned in his list the need to tithe on herbs and spices grown out behind someone's house that was used to flavor the food of the family. The Pharisees, however, they did mention it. In fact, they they greatly expanded the list of things beyond what the Bible said, the list of things that were necessary to tithe on. According to them, necessary. Not according to God, but according to them. You see, there were hair splitters. They focused on minutiae and making rules up. Uh, and they said, you got to tithe on whatever you grow in that little plot behind the house. This was yet another example, this tithing on flavoring herbs and spices. This was yet another example, and there were many, of the scribes and the Pharisees making up their own laws and adding them to God's law in such a way that it was obscuring what God's law required. They were this was their this was their MO. They did the same thing with fasting. 
They did the same thing with hand washings. They did the same thing with Sabbath observance. They added their, their, their um, uh, man-made rules to what God actually said and said, you've got to obey it all. And the, the truth of the matter is, they often stressed the need to obey their man-made rules more than they stressed the need to obey what God actually was requiring of people. And this is one of the things that Jesus is implicitly criticizing here in this verse. But what made the scribes and the Pharisees' behavior that I just now described so appalling to Jesus was the fact that the great care with which they obeyed their own man-made rules regarding tithing contrasted sharply with their utter indifference to things that were most important to God. Namely, that his people should act always justly. That they should be merciful to those who are in need of mercy around them. And that they should be reliable and trustworthy individuals. Sharp contrast on the things that they focused in on. Which is why Jesus says in verse 24, You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. So that was the first. Um, that was the first example of them honing in on man-made religious rules and neglecting uh, the things of God when it came to um, tithing. But the second example that he gives is found in verse twenty-five um, of elevating their rules above God's law. Let me read it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind guides, you blind Pharisee, first clean out the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Jesus has something specific in mind here. We aren't exactly sure what that is, but the point is pretty clear, the overall point. People, these, these men took great care to ceremonially cleanse their 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 dishes, their cups and their dishes, so that their kitchen kitchen would be kosher. They were very careful about that. That was very, very important to them. Um, but they were unconcerned about whether the food or drink inside the vessel or on the dish was honest, honestly obtained by the user or whether the contents of that dish or cup were consumed in a inappropriate fashion, in other words, gluttonous, in a gluttonous fashion, or uh, drinking wine to excess. They didn't care about those, how the dishes and the cups were used, just so long as they were clean when they started out. didn't matter if you got the food on the plate by extorting widows. didn't matter if you got it by stealing uh, from your neighbor when he wasn't looking, just so long as the cup is clean was how these men thought. In other words, their concern was, in many ways, the need to keep up appearances. Does that sound familiar? A lot of people. I, I grew up in a church where, although I shouldn't, probably shouldn't mention that, but it appeared that many people went to church and were there to keep up appearances. I know I was. I'll, I'll speak for myself. 
I wanted to look like a good little boy, even though I was not such a good little boy. But I wanted to keep that from other people. I just wanted to let them see what I wanted them to see. Are you that way? It's evil. And you need to repent of it if that describes you. Another thing that the scribes and Pharisees were doing was that there were that uh, evil that was was characterized them was that they were spiritually dead on the inside, contrary to their own protestations or their own pretensions, rather their own pretensions. We read this in verses twenty-seven and twenty-eight. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you were like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the... um, So in other words, these men that he's chastising were essentially unregenerate zombies. They were the walking dead deviously masquerading as holy men, as pastors. There are untold numbers of pastors in this country today who fit this description. Congregants as well. Is there anybody here today who fits that description? Unregenerate, unconverted, but masquerading as good Christian. Flee from your own foolishness and your own hypocrisy and flee to Christ if that describes you. And then lastly, Jesus accuses the scribes and Pharisees rightly of longing in their hearts to murder uh, God's spokesmen, plural, and of of that they would actually, would in fact, uh, in, the, in the near future, do so, despite denying that they had any desire to do so. So uh, let's read it. Well, I won't, I won't read it right now. I'll say something first. Um, this was probably the most damning charge of all that Jesus levels against these men. So first, in verses 29 to 32, and I won't bother reading it for the sake of time, but he charges them with being the true sons, the true heirs, if you will, the true um, um, yeah, followers of their ancestors, their bloodthirsty ancestors. He said, you are sons of your fathers who murdered the prophets of old, the divine spokesmen that God sent to uh, the people, God's people of old, to cause them to repent. And your forefathers killed them, and you are Legitimate heirs of your forefathers. Legitimate followers and sons of your forefathers. He says that in verses uh, 29 to 32. But then he goes on and doesn't just say, you have murderous hearts because you, you're like your forefather, just like your forefathers, contrary to your own uh, d- denial. They, they, they try to deny it. They say in verse 30, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And Jesus' point is, oh yes, you would have. 
And then he offers his evidence. He says, what's going to happen is, in the near future, your longings to kill and murder God's prophets and torment God's prophets is going to actually be realized. And he says that in verses 34 and 36. I will read that. Therefore, behold, I am sending you. I, uh, he's equating himself here, by the way, implicitly with the God of the Old Testament, who sent the prophets of the Old Testament. He's saying, therefore, I, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will, there's the plural, you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And then he says that upon you, in other words, and the purpose of your doing this, the result of you doing this is that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. That Jesus' prophecy, uh, this prophecy that Jesus makes here was actually fulfilled, was it not? It was fulfilled later that week uh, in a preeminent way when they arranged to have Jesus put to death, to have the Romans kill Jesus for them. Jesus is the prophet of God that all the other prophets were uh, foreshadowed. They killed God the Son. His blood, if you will, was on was about to be on their hands. They stoned Stephen to death. This prophecy was also fulfilled when they relentlessly pursued and hounded Paul and his various associates all around the Mediterranean when they went from town to town in Asia Minor. The Jews were following and trying to foment trouble against them and trying to get them killed. And finally, of course, they succeeded. Right? They got, they got them in the hands of the Romans and um, all that transpired. And finally, Paul ended up, ended up in Rome. And he, uh, even though the scriptures don't tell us this, it's quite clear he, he died. He was killed. And the, these men, more than any other, were responsible for his death at the hands of Caesar. And you know what? Wicked churchmen have frequently murdered God's godly ones. His godly servants, ministers, and also their followers. Rome did this in the Inquisition. After the start of the Protestant Reformation, Rome killed lots and lots of godly men and women and children because they loved Jesus. The Anglican Church did the same thing under Archbishop Laud when they murdered Presbyterian ministers and their followers in, uh, uh, in Scotland during the period of the Covenanters. And the list goes on and on. Evil in the church. Satan is alive and well in the church through people like this. So we've spent most of our time uh, looking, because the scripture did, the passage did, at the, the great evils committed by these uh, pseudo-shepherds of God's people. But we are told in this passage also the, of the horrifying destiny of these pseudo-shepherds of the ancient church. In two places, uh, really, although in a third place that alludes to it. But first we are told in verse 33, you serpents. Notice the equation with Satan. You serpents. 
you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Which, of course, means you won't. It's not possible. They were, their hearts were hardened. They were reprobates. They were going to die uh, evermore at the hands of God's wrath. Hell is the place where God's judicial wrath is being and will be poured out upon the damned for all eternity. It's a real place, and it is unimaginably horrifying. The suffering and the agony and the torment of those that are there is unimaginable, and it is everlasting, and it is deserved. And you know what? Every last one of us deserves it. But Christians won't get there. I'll say more about that in a minute. But hell is also a place that someone once solemnly said to me, a place uh, whose walls will be lined with Christian ministers. Not actual Christian ministers, but supposed, alleged Christian ministers. It's sad, but it's true. A lot of wickedness in the leadership of Christ's church even today. And they will suffer for their crimes and they will justly receive what their crimes deserve forevermore. And just to focus on that a little bit more, um, they'll not only be sentenced to hell, but they will receive greater condemnation than others will in hell. If you look back at verse 14, Jesus makes this point. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while you, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. He says, therefore, you shall, you will, receive greater condemnation. James 3, 1 solemnly warns people that are considering going into the ministry, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. Verse 14 that I just read to you is testimony to the truth of that statement. Why do reprobate shepherds of God's people, whether there be shepherds in the Old Testament Jewish church or the New Testament church, why do they suffer more exquisitely than others at the hands of the holy God of the Bible? They do so because God utterly detests and abhors hypocrisy. Especially in those who claim to represent him. And claim to be servants of his. By the way, uh, all Christians are servants and representatives of Christ. Not just the likes of me which means this applies to you just as much as it does to me. God hates hypocrisy in your life and my life. And the second reason why they're suffering uh, of these men, uh, these scribes and Pharisees and any others like them, uh, will be greater than it will be for others is because they defied God with a while in possession of greater spiritual light. 
Going to seminary is dangerous, even if it's a liberal seminary. Because they still read the Bible. They pick it apart and, they, and criticize it and dismiss it. Uh, but they still read the Bible extensively. Um, they have greater light than most folks in the pew do. And therefore, they sin against greater light. And so God is particularly furious at them. The, the, larger, or the shorter catechism tells us that uh, some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. This is one of those sins. But there are others, by the way. There are others. Um, a perverse sexual sin is a perverted sexual sin is greater a greater sin than uh, heterosexual sin. I'll put it that way. It's a, it's a, it's an aggravation to use to be engaged in perverse sexual sin uh, above uh, above uh, yeah standard immorality between people of the opposite sex. And there are other examples as well. The point is, um, don't don't be a fool. If there's anybody listening to me now who thinks you're pulling the wool over God's uh, eyes, um, you you think you're pulling a fast one on God by uh, pretending to be holy, pretending giving money to the church, member of good, you know, baptized, so on and so forth, but then in the darkness uh, of of your house or uh, when nobody's looking, you engage in behavior that is um, most despicable or think thoughts or have attitudes. Don't think God doesn't notice that and doesn't hate it, especially since it's hypocritical. It's one thing if you're an outward, an, uh, unabashed and proud um, you know, reprobate. That's one thing. That's evil, and God will punish that. But it's another thing when you pretend not to be, and you are. Don't be a hypocrite. If there's anyone listening to me who is, um, has never trusted in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, who is fully God and fully man and the only Savior of sinners, the only one who can save sinners, if you are not trusting in him alone to save you, not in anything else, not in anything that you've done, plus Jesus, but just in Jesus, you need Jesus. You desperately need him. Uh, flee to him now if you want to, and only the Lord can give you the want to. But if you want to, if you see your the need for forgiveness, if you understand how uh, uh, angry God is at your sin and your rebellion against him, and you understand that Jesus alone can save you, then flee to him. If you want him, flee to him, and you will be saved. May God give you the grace to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this very sobering text. It is hard sometimes to hear things like this, but you put it in here, um, and uh, you made a long list of things that you hate. Lord, would you please help each one of us to remember what you hate, um, hypocritical uh, deviations from your law and your will. And would you please help us to flee from things that we are now doing that we know offend you, 
uh, and that we haven't done anything about yet to speak of. And would you please, for those of us who are not walking in uh, deliberate sin, who are not uh, playing games with you uh, at present or being particularly hypocritical, would you please protect us from uh, going back to the, uh, the pigsty of our sin? We thank you that you will because you love us and because you love your glory and your honor um, and you want your name to be honored in us who wear it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.